With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, their sins are not forgiven. This is God's word. You may be seated. I reminded you at the beginning of the sermon that you'll find inside of the announcement sheet or the bulletin, you'll find a sermon outline that you can use as we go through the study. And maybe there's something that we're going to run across in God's Word or something that's said, something that's going to maybe trigger a, a thought process that maybe you want to follow up this afternoon or later this week. That, uh, that outline is there for you to use, to take notes and to do with it whatever you want as it pertains to our study this morning out of John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. We're going to pray... And then let's jump right into it. Father, there are so many ways that we want to say you're beautiful because there are millions of ways that you show yourself beautiful to us. And more than anything else, we want to be beautiful as you are, Father, in, in our love and our graciousness and gracefulness, in the way that we show love and compassion and mercy, the way that, that we are we're courageous with your gospel and compassionate with our sacrifices and, and our, our acts of, of kindness towards other people. And so help, Father, instill in, in, in us this mission that you have, Father, for your world and is being carried out by your church, the mission of your Son Christ, that's being carried out by your church, even in this city of San Antonio. And so to this end, Father, we ask with all of our heart and in full faith and in the name of Jesus, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in order to be transformed and to be radically changed, Father, into these, these fountains of blessing and compassion and mercy in the gospel in this community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next 30 seconds or so, I want to read some statements to you, short little phrases. And I want you, as you're listening to them, to, to think about what all of these have in common. What all of these statements have in common. I'm new to San Antonio. My kids are out of control. Why can't I do anything right? I could really use a job. I can't sleep. My mom's in the hospital. I'm retired. Now what? Layoffs start next week. How are we going to afford this baby? Man, am I ready to be out of this house. Now, outside of the fact that they seem to imply, some more than others, that there's a little bit of trouble, a little bit of adversity, something negative going on in life, what do these phrases have in common? They are said in all of the neighborhoods in which we live. These are the kinds of things that are said in all of the homes, in the neighborhoods, all around the city in which we live. 
There is a, a quote that I've given you over the years a couple of times. It's from the book, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And I want to read a portion of, of that quote again to kind of lubricate our minds a little bit as to, to kind of where we're headed with this text out of John chapter 20. Uh, Becker, who was a sociologist, uh, won uh, all kinds of acclaim for his writings and his studies and his findings, especially back in the 60s. He writes in The Denial of Death, he says, I think that tasting, taking life seriously means something such as this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. End of quote. He writes a little bit further down in the page that it's possible that the meaning of life or the philosophy of the universe is that it is always in a rhythm of sorrow. That the meaning of the universe is a rhythm of sorrow. The rumble of panic that's underneath everything. Now, quite frankly, you might run into somebody. In fact, you probably know uh, a couple of people like this. When it comes to death, they're absolutely fearless. They, death is not real high on their fear agenda. They're not really afraid of it all that much. But the terror begins to seize them when they think about what that death might do to somebody that they love very much. The rumble of panic that's underneath everything. Uh, Carol Albright reminded me of a movie that Ellen and I saw uh, probably about a year ago. It's a Disney movie entitled The Finest Hours. It's the true story of a Coast Guard rescue of the, the remaining crew of the oil tanker, the SS Pendleton, that had been torn in half by a storm. And all of those guys that are there in that boat are struggling with their own rumble of panic that's underneath everything. And so the Coast Guard is called from the Northeast out into the Atlantic to do a rescue mission. And it seems like a suicide mission because there's this sandbar that's offshore that they've got to get over in order to make it to that boat that's been torn in half. And the, the, the front half of that boat, the ship, has sunk into the water. The back half of that boat is still afloat. It's, it's on another, it's kind of been run aground on some rocks, still a distance out into the ocean, but it's going down. And if that boat doesn't make it across, or a Coast Guard rescue ship make it across that sandbar, all of those men are lost. Well, it is. It's a suicide mission because it just seems to everybody in the Coast Guard at that point, as they get out there in that storm, trying to make it over those gigantic waves that are coming across that, that sandbar, that, that there's no way to do it except one. Coast Guard 36500. And that's the boat that makes it over the sandbar, makes it out to the ship, and is able to rescue everyone. Now, there is no hope for anyone on that ship, the SS Pendleton, that's been torn in half unless somebody is able to break through the barrier. There's got to be a breakthrough. Now, the question for us this morning really boils down to, to this. Does all of life boil down to to the rhythm of sorrow, to the, the, royal, the, the, the rumble of panic that's underneath everything. I mean, how do you break through the rumble of panic that is underneath everything? Which brings us to our text this morning. The text gives us a time frame. Jesus has just a couple of days earlier been, been betrayed, and he's been beaten, and he's been tortured, he's been crucified, and he's been buried. 
And now it's Sunday evening of the very first Easter morning, the first day of the week after he has been crucified. And the disciples of Jesus were minus Judas, who is now dead himself, and Thomas, that we're going to read later on, is going to discover that the, the Savior has been resurrected at a later point. They are, these, these ten are in a locked room, in a, in, a, in a room behind a locked door. Now, why, why in the world are these guys behind that door, locked and in hiding? It's because they're in fear. Absolutely gripped in fear. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders who, along with the Roman soldiers, had crucified Jesus, and they have the right to be afraid. Because in that day and in our day and other parts of the world, if you follow somebody that is captured and executed because of, of, of perceptions of, of, of treason or of betrayal and these kinds of things, then as followers, you're probably going to be arrested and captured as well, and you'll suffer the same fate. They are afraid for their lives. They're afraid for their futures. They're afraid for their families. They're afraid for everything. But fear is not the only emotion that they have that's locking that door. They have also seen their friend, the friend that they loved, the friend that they dedicated their life to. They have seen him betrayed and beat to a pulp and falsely accused and beaten again into the ground by Roman soldiers and mocked and humiliated and then crucified along a road. These men, for lack of a better word, are traumatized. They are traumatized and they are in grief and they are in fear and that has a grip on them. They are sad and they are afraid for their own lives. And while they are behind this locked door, the most amazing thing happens. Verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom alaikum. Peace be with you be with you. Now you can kind of imagine how this went down, right? These guys are absolutely terrified. They are in grief. They are sad. They are afraid. They're behind locked doors. They're hiding and they're just there together, the ten of them, and they're looking down at the ground and then they look up at each other and nobody says anything. Then they look down to the ground again and they look up and they look at each other and they don't know what to do. And they look down again, and they are distraught, and they are in despair, and they're disappointed, and they're afraid, and they look up, and right in the middle is Jesus of Nazareth. And these disciples are flabbergasted. Go, oh, how in the world? I mean, we get this, right? We know how this went down. They, all of a sudden, Jesus is right there, has somehow come into this locked room without opening a door, and, and they are absolutely shocked at his appearance. How did this happen? Where, where did you come from? I didn't hear the door open. Did you open the door? Did anybody see him come in? And Jesus says to them, Shalom Alakum. Which is, you know, we, we typically translate the word Shalom peace. I mean, it's a very famous word. We, we know it. And we usually think of it in terms of like peace. Shalom means more than that. Shalom is about completeness. It's about wholesomeness. It's about the way things are supposed to be and he shows them his hands and he shows them the side and the reason he shows them the side is because no one else had been pierced only him he's just proving to them that it's him as they're rubbing their eyes and looking at him and trying to make sense of this and i mean who can blame them they are absolutely astonished and stunned i mean what in the world would you do if you saw the first resurrected human being now the question is, what in the world is going on here? 
They're hiding. They're locked away in a room. Jesus shows up. What in the world is God doing? The answer is that to these guys who are frightened out of their minds and frightened out of their schools and out of their wits, God is showing that Christ has broken through their fear of death and has broken through that rumble of panic that's underneath everything. The worst thing that they can imagine is not going to define them. They think that Jesus being crucified is what's going to define them for the rest of their life. It will mean that either they too are going to be executed or they, because their leader was executed and crucified in that way, they're always going to be on the run. They're always going to be on the lamp. They're always going to be in hiding. They're always going to be looking over their shoulder. What God is showing them is now their new future, the resurrection. And, and Christ did not just hit death and bounce back from that as if the Roman soldiers who were experts in, in, in meeting out death somehow had misdiagnosed Jesus' demise. Jesus hit death. And they knew it. And pushed through to the other side. And now standing in their midst, although the door was locked, is a resurrected Lord. And what happened to them is what happens to us today. When they saw the resurrected Jesus, they saw their future. Which means, for us in a practical way, that we live in the present in light of this future reality. That when it comes to the typical rumbles of panic and the rhythm of the sorrow that seems to, to, to mark the, 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 the philosophy of the, of the universe, that we are living in light of what they are experiencing as our own reality. That when they saw Jesus, they saw their future. When we understand what is happening in this text, we too see our future. And the disciples see their Lord and they're just overjoyed. Everything bad has changed now for them. The world is different because of this resurrection. Death no longer is that great enemy. And so Jesus says again to them in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now what does that mean, as the Father sent me? Well, you know that if you've read John's gospel a couple of times, you know that it's, his gospel is sort of multidimensional, that you can kind of skim across the top of it in a quick read and really be blessed by all of those stories that are unique to John's gospel and the teachings that are unique in John's gospel. But you also know that if you slow down just a little bit and you plow down a little bit more deeply into the text, you're blessed in a different way. For instance... How does John's gospel begin? First three words. In the what? Beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, I've heard that before someplace, right? What, what John is doing in the very beginning of his gospel is, is trying to communicate to us that God, through Jesus, is going to be doing something new. That there's going to be something created that is new. The gospel, salvation, the resurrection, all of that. And it's a perspective that he gives us. And this happens throughout his gospel. Because we don't have time, we need to cut to the chase. Think about this particular text and where we are in the story of Jesus. Think about this. John, the gospel of John, never uses the word Gethsemane, which means olive oil press, 
Only Matthew and Mark use those words. Luke never uses it, but John never uses it at all and only uses the word garden. John chapter 18, verse 1. They go across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives to a garden. Two verses later, Judas, with all of those, those that support crew for the betrayal, Judas comes into the garden. Chapter 18, verse 26, Peter is asked if he was with Jesus in the garden. In John chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus is crucified, according to John, just outside of a garden. But then his body is taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, and he is buried and resurrects into new life from a tomb that is inside a garden. Go to the next chapter, chapter 20, verse 15. Mary, on the first day of the week, Shabbat is over. Jesus' body had been hastily buried and prepared for burial. She's going to, to do it the right way on the first day of the week. Now that the Sabbath or Shabbat is over, she runs into Jesus, doesn't recognize him because she thinks he's who? The gardener. Garden, 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 gardener, garden. I mean, all of a sudden, we begin to see something else that John is helping us to intuit here in this text. The Garden of Eden, at the very beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve are, where they decide that they're going to do their will and not God's will, they eat of that forbidden fruit, and in that very moment that they eat of that fruit, all of paradise is lost. The world, the universe is changed. The, the garden that's in that paradise is lost. In that moment, the world that they live in, the world that we live in, becomes a broken place with a rumble of panic underneath everything, and it's wrapped in a rhythm of sorrow. But now, in this good news, this gospel that John is writing, there is another garden where Jesus has reversed that prayer. It's no longer my will, not your will, but Jesus is praying, your will, not mine. And it's in a garden that death has been defeated and Jesus, being resurrected in that garden, begins to bring healing into human existence. And one day, even to creation itself, it will be healed too. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me into this world, I'm going to send you. So where we live in the present, in light of that future reality, number two we invade the world with hope and joy. That's your mission every day, church. That's what you do every day. You invade all of the places that you go, all the places where you live and work, where you exist. You invade that world with hope and joy. You know, the resurrection is not only a message of hope, but a mission. It's a calling. When we understand the resurrection and the resurrection becomes our reality, we're not going to be passive about the things that Christ himself suffered for and died for. Christ was sent into the world to save and to heal and to reconcile and to repair and to restore. And we are the people that can continue his ministry in the world. You know, a way that you can think about it is this. You know, usually on a Sunday morning we'll have about 750 people at this assembly in this room. Now, conservatively, conservatively, 
Maybe God gives us more than that, but conservatively, we're going to say that God gives you 10 opportunities during the day to bless somebody, to reveal God, to, to, to show the gospel, to, 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 for people to get an idea of what the gospel is all about in the way that they see changes in your life, in the way that you interact with other people, in the way that you bless people. It's about Him and His love and His gospel, His mercy and His grace. And he, if He gives us, Ten opportunities a day, and we have 750 people in this room. That's 7,000, and I'm, not, I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. That's 7,500 opportunities to demonstrate the gospel every day in this city. 7,500. 7,500 opportunities for us to say to the people around us, peace is possible in Christ. You know, in Matthew chapter 11, that John the Baptist is struggling. He kind of had an idea of what he thought the Messiah was going to look like, and now he's in prison, looked like he's not going to last much longer. He's outside of Israel at this point. He's on the far side. He's on the east side of the Dead Sea, separated from Israel. Things are not going the way that he thought that they would be when he was cognizant of the fact that he was going to be the herald, the announcer, the guy that was going to show everyone the Messiah, the true Messiah of Israel when he appeared in the world. And he sends a couple of his friends to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. And he says, I want you to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? And so they go and they find Jesus and they ask him the question. They say, John wants to know this. Your cousin John wants to know, are you the one? And Jesus says, go back and tell him what you see. Tell him what you see. Blind people get their sight. And lame people can walk. And lepers are healed. And the deaf can hear the voice of their loved ones for the first time and the dead are raised. That God's shalom is invading the world again and putting it to the rights and bringing healing to the broken places. What Jesus has basically taught his disciples throughout his entire ministry even to the day that he ascended into heaven. The greatest commandment, love God, love people. Love God. And, and it's not some kind of a generic, I mean, you, when you love God, you love the things that God loves. I mean, you think about your, your marriage. I mean, you, you, you think, of, you know, it wouldn't be a good example in my marriage because Ellen is so easy to love, but think about her being married to me. And, and how, when she loves me, begins to love the things that I love. Willie Nelson. Brussels sprouts. Yeah, uh, you, don't, don't knock it till you try, brother. <laughs> but she begins to love the things. That, and that's what it means to love God. It's not, some, it's not some generic way to say, you know, I love God because I think God is cool. You know, I believe that there's a God. I, you know, I, I pray to him every day. No, when you love God the way that Jesus is teaching us to love God, you love the things that God loves. 
And not only do you love God, but you love people. You love people the way that God loves people. And you share the message that, that Christ shared with people. And you, you teach them about God. And you teach how to reconnect to God and be reconciled to God. Even though we've messed up our lives and our lives are broken, we all experience that rumble of the panic underneath because of sin. And then once they kind of got that, as he's ascending into heaven, what is it that he says? Go into the entire world. Go into the entire world. And I want you to make disciples. You do that by teaching. You do that by baptizing. And I'm with you all the way. You know what Jesus is teaching us? You love God. You love people. And you change the world. You change the world. You know, from time to time, and we'll close out with this, uh, from time to time I'm asked, if heaven is a perfect place, and that's what we're being resurrected to, our, you know, the best version, the perfect version of, of us come out in the resurrection. That's what God is going to do. How come Jesus has those, those marks of his crucifixion, the marks of his own death on his hands and feet, side? And that's a really good question. But here's what's happening in that upper room as Jesus appears for the very first time to these disciples who are really struggling with life and the rumble of panic that's underneath everything now because of his crucifixion. When they saw those wounds inflicted on him, they thought they were goners. They thought they were goners. That if they can do that to him, they're going to do that to us. And when they saw those wounds... They thought they were dead, just dead ducks. But now they understand what those wounds stand for. And that's why he showed the hands and the side, and they became overjoyed. Because those, those wounds did not mean that they too were going to be wounded and killed. Those wounds meant that somebody had broken through to the other side. That what looked like to them a suicide mission turned out to be a rescue. And that when they understood those wounds on the hands and the feet and the side, they became the most beautiful feature on the body of Christ. And I don't think that for the next million trillion years in eternity, they will ever look at those hands and not see the beauty of the gospel and the healing that God is bringing to his world and that they got to participate in that, like us today. We're going to have our shepherds come down to the front and maybe there's a way that we can minister to you today. We can pray for you. We can study with you, counsel with you. There's so many ways that we can help you to understand and to make that solid contact with the shalom. The shalom of God in your life through the gospel. And if that describes you this morning, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil?